1: G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1443, which is entitled Triptych. And our podcast title is Podcedural. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And, well, we're going true, true crime here today in a historical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was Megan's idea. <laughs>
0: He's washing his hands of it. It was my idea, but I think we've got a lot to unpack, so I'm keen to have a pretty robust discussion around uh, what this true crime uh, tropes bring to the table.
1: Mm. And what a grim and macabre table it is, actually. Uh, It's true crime genre, and we're going to sort of unpack it a little bit with three different films circulating through them. The main impetus for this, I suppose, is the... The new film, uh, Boston Strangler, Uh and that's obviously a historical film because it is set in the 60s largely, and of course the other film riffing off of that subject is The Boston Strangler. This is like the 1968 one with Tony Curtis playing the main criminal Protagonist Spoiler. Mm-hmm.
0: And much, much closer to, I mean, that's in the 60s. This is right off the back of these actual events. Oh, like, that's fresh. That's an open wound. I'm intrigued that they made something so quickly.
1: Well, the other one that they also made quickly is No Way to Treat a Lady, which is a sort of a fictionalised adaptation, you know, in as they say, inspired by or perhaps based upon true crimes, you know, that sort of thing. So... In a way, those three films do kind of encompass quite a bit of the tropes and lore of the true crime genre, or the biopic in this case, but it does happen to be about murderers and murders and victims. So there's a lot to talk about in this one today. And I, I found I find the subject very difficult for me to, to work out in my own head in terms of the tropes and its unsettling. It is supposed mm. to you have to really accept that it is actually supposed to be that way.
0: Yeah, so I think, I mean, something I've realised about myself is the way I come to these things is I often like the adaptations and the uh, kind of TV and films that focus more around the peripheral characters who are either reporting on the crime, uh, trying to help understand and analyse the perpetrators after the fact. So I'm talking about things like Mindhunter, Silence of the Lambs, Zodiac. So these are kind of retro true crime films that – uh, the reason why Boston Strangler caught my interest is because I felt they fell into this bucket where I'm not huge on the biopic of a serial killer themselves, because obviously that's very problematic. There's many ways in which is that's glorifying the wrong characters in the piece. Um, and as you mentioned before, I think, uh, These are real people's lives. Those people usually do still have family and it can be incredibly disrespectful the way some of these things are done. And so I've realised that I do like to gravitate towards the procedural element of that. So that's either the law enforcement side, media, like how that played into the whole thing. And I think that is kind of my pathway into it, not to say that it's not still problematic because I think true crime has definitely ridden a wave that has reached a point where There's a lot of things to unpack and to question about why it has such a strong stance in popular culture and whether it's doing more harm than good.
1: Would you say, just as an aside, a sidebar, that the Scandinavian true crime genre and fictional crime, is that sort of led the new wave of it?
0: I think it's interesting when it becomes about the artistic depiction as well in a way and creating a mood, so like a mood of terror and a mood of tension, and I think some of those Scandinavian crime pieces are really good for that because they're in a way quite cut and paste in that you go in and you know exactly what atmosphere to expect. Yeah. You usually have a detective or someone to really hinge your hopes on, and it's usually often a bit outlandish enough that it doesn't quite hit you um and make you feel as raw as some of these ones that are based very closely on true events. Yeah. That's how I I've found it. Yeah.
1: It's a it's a genre that actually I have seen a fair bit in despite it not actually being one that I'm <laughs> I'm you know super shipping with. Uh you know like going back to um Fritz Lang's M 1931. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that's a that's an ancient film now. Peter Lorre playing the killer in that one. And I feel like these films, they do have a, a grim legacy and they've also blossomed out. And the tropes that, that, that kind of disturb me, there are things like victim blaming, which is pretty much the, the default in a lot of 20th century media. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Then there's the round up the usual suspects which are often fringe or marginalized rubber other groups and of course lgbtqi communities uh, or the uh, if you're in europe it's often the um, the romani you know so and the corollary is that um the villains are often safely monstered as outsiders they're, yeah. they're not us they're beyond the tribe and that's disturbing mm. too and And there's often out-of-date, superseded and often superficially portrayed tropes about mental health disorders, for example.
0: Yes, very damaging.
1: (laughs) And when you get a larger number of victims, as in the case of the Boston Strangler, the focus too easily shifts to the killer as being the through-line individual, as you were saying before. So we get more (laughs) of our focus (laughs) upon them, alongside, admittedly, the detective or the reporters. Yes. Yes. Yeah, 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 And it's easy to lose all track of the tragedy of, of murder as, as people become the victims or number nine or so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I've yes. got a lot to think about when I process these films. Mm, 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 agree. Anyway, I feel like we should give people a chance to consider whether or not they want to listen to us talking about some true crime movies today mm-hmm. because obviously it can be a triggering experience. Uh, I, I myself have known people who've had sad, untimely demises, and I do find it confronting myself. So we will have a track which will kind of give you time to reach minimum safe distance if you want to run away from Zero G today. Scary Monsters and Super Creeps I think is probably appropriate for the subject matter. Uh, Rachel Garnier has interpreted the Bowie track in an album Gone to Glory. This is China Mieville, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM Melbourne. Hmm. Scary monsters and super creeps. Rachel Garnier's is reinterpreting the Bowie song from Gone to Glory, but, of course, this comes from the 1980s, from Mr. Bowie's eponymous album there. So... It's kind of appropriate, that track. It's about a woman's descent into madness it's in as much as any Bully track is about anything when you think about it, <laughs> Very nice
0: little cover, mm. too. And that was our brief respite to uh, get you sort of some space to decide if you wanted to hear us talk a little bit now about Boston Strangler, uh, which is a new movie that is out on Disney+. Plus. It is a Hulu film in the US, but, of course, uh, here in Australia, we get it on different platforms, so it is streaming on Disney+. Plus. It's about two hours and it is one of those historical, inspired by a true story, crime, investigative films. So it's written and directed by Matt Ruskin. It's his fifth film. I wasn't very familiar with any of his other work. And as I mentioned before, it did catch my interest a bit because I ha- I have enjoyed um, films like Zodiac And also investigative journalism films I really like as well, things like All the President's Men and Spotlight, which kind of follow the pace of journalism in the, I guess you could say, golden age of of reporting, Um, and just what it takes to kind of break a story and all of that. Before we dig too much into the actual film itself, uh, I wanted to give a little bit of background on the events that it is covering. So The Boston Strangler was a serial killer, in quotes, that operated in the Boston area in the early 1960s he did kill 13 women uh he assaulted them and strangled them in their homes usually with an article of some kind of clothing of theirs and i did just want to take a moment to read out the names of all of the the women who were killed uh during that time as as you'll maybe hear a little later is there's some contention that one person was responsible for all of these but i'd like to just read their names and give them the respect they deserve here Anna Slessis, who was 55, Mary Mullen, who was 85, Nina Nichols, who was 68, Helen Blake, who was 65, Ida Erger, who was 75, Jane Sullivan, who was 67, Sophie Clark, who was 20, Patricia Bassett, who was 23, Mary Brown, who was 69, Beverly Sammons, who was 23, Evelyn Corbin, 57, Joanne Graff, who was 23, and Mary Sullivan, who was 19. So many of the women who were killed early in this time were older and unmarried and did live alone. And the perpetrator did manage to get invited into their homes by pretending to be a handyman of some sort um, to get through the threshold and then he would surprise them. So I think um, that's what was quite frightening for women at the time is that, you know, that was kind of a time where you would trust and take people at their word if they were there to help you out in the home or what have you. Uh, And then it became a a time where the home didn't feel safe anymore and that you couldn't trust people as you had once done. So I think these days uh, there's a bit more of a commentary on the fact you really shouldn't give serial killers catchy names like this. Uh, it kind of gives them golden time in the media that they don't deserve and it gives them a bit of undue notoriety that, that they, they then strive to keep up. But at the time, this is something that was quite popular and was often done, uh, giving you know a perpetrator a kind of jingle name, especially in the in the press. So, Boston Strangler itself is a term that's pretty well known in pop culture, and it appears across uh, in different you know situations across time since then which is a little on the nose which you know considering that women lost their lives it was quite terrifying time in the city for a lot of people but that is what it is so we've got band's name after them NBA basketball player was kind of known by that nickname i mean that's all a little (laughs) yeah it's not great so as rob mentioned this uh these crimes have appeared on screen so It was the inspiration for a 1964 film uh, called The Strangler, also uh, a novel by William Goldman in 1964 called No Way to Treat a Lady, and it inspired story arcs on multiple different TV shows like American Gothic, Rizzoli and Isles, and Crossing Jordan. And then, of course, another film was made in 1968, starring Tony Curtis and Henry Fonda, The Boston Strangler. And uh, there was another 2008 film, The Boston Strangler, The Untold Story. Now there's been a new film released this year, but it is more focused on the two investigative reporters, Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin, who wrote multiple articles for the Boston Record American on the crimes, and they were the ones who coined the term Boston Strangler, and that is largely what this film follows. It f- comes from the point of view of those two reporters and their involvement in the story and just details around that time in the early 1960s in Boston. So we come to the film. The basic premise is it's early 1960s, Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin investigated and they did break the story of um, the notorious Boston Strangler killings uh, and they worked for the Boston Record American newspaper and this was after Loretta connected the dots on some of the murders of women in Boston, the first five or six uh, Loretta herself was kept out of a lot of the stories she'd wanted to do and she wanted to cover something more substantial so she did start investigating on her own and eventually got, got paired up with Jean Cole to work on the story and the two reporters did work tirelessly uh, over many articles and um, battled kind of the general sexism of the time that thought women should not be covering things like crime and murder. And of course, uh due to their reporting, as the events were unfolding, they became pretty embroiled in the events and the investigation, and a big part of the wave of panic and uh, as the hunt for the killer continued. Another thing the film does is it's pretty interesting the way it portrays uh, gender roles at the time and women in the workplace. It does it in a fairly subtle way, but it is all throughout the film and also a little bit about the role of media in crime investigations, although I did wish it went a little bit further into that point, to be honest, because in real life there was much more controversy around the effect these articles were having on the investigation and that's not really covered very much in the film and also because they were quite critical of the, Police Department's handling of the investigation in Boston at the time and the lack of coordination with other cities' police departments uh, where there were other similar crimes happening, but they felt that the progress should that should have been made was not being made, so – Yes, this is kind of very focused on Loretta, who went from the lifestyle stories of fashion gossip and new toasters to really wanting to cover these stories of these women.
1: I'm not sure if she was actually a bit of a medical reporter at the time too or if that was just uh, Jean Cole. There's some further things to be unpicked in the background story of all of these characters that, look, these are movies we're talking about. You know, you've got an hour, two hours, hour and a half, that sort of thing. They're not going to get into all the uh, the nuances and the crevices of the of the characters, and this is something that we were talking about earlier on. That the, the sheer number of victims in this means that you tend to marginalise the stories of, of those characters if mention them at all. You really do, you know. I mean, sometimes they're reduced to a line in the uh, the newspaper report or on a, a television news programme. or in one case, I remember somebody saying, uh, "An extremely respectable woman," you know, about one of the the victims. Like, like it doesn't make much difference, really. What you're talking about there? It's it's just that those tropes that they try and fit people into. Kara Knightley, I think I think yes. she's excellent in the role. First off, the main requirement to start off with is a leading chin. She has a a determined set to her jaw in this. That Brooks no argument, and she's cuts through that glass ceiling in this case quite effectively. I was reading some bios of the the actual reporters and stuff, and uh, they're pretty true to life in this case. Uh, we of course know her for, as being a handmaiden in the Phantom Menace, a role which she quickly put behind her. She was Princess of Thieves, Robin Hood's daughter, uh, Elizabeth Swan in Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm sensing a trend here. She picked up a bow and arrow in King Arthur in 2004. Uh, so good honor. I think this is a, an excellent role for her. We do learn a lot about her character in this, but I don't feel like we learn quite, as much as we could,
0: yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think you know they do a little bit to portray Loretta's uh troublesome home life in terms of you know, and this is a trope we see quite often where someone is very focused hyper focused on a career thing like. And in this case, it's pursuing this story, finding out as much as she can, continuing to publish her articles. And of course, it's at the expense of time with her family, her relationship with her husband and so on. And especially during that time where women got a little bit of flack for even working, the fact that she's working such long hours, often not around to help with childcare and things like that, are frowned upon. Definitely frowned upon. And it, the movie does do a little bit to show that, but I do agree that I think Kira does a lot, Kira, my mate Kira does a lot with a, a sort of a thin script of actually showing what Loretta's like aside from the just the one-liner of obsessed with these murders. Um, she does do a lot in her portrayal to show that Loretta is pretty ballsy. She doesn't really like techno for an She doesn't mind talking back. She doesn't mind being a little bit feisty. And I think that's, what's nice about the role of Jean Cole, Carrie Coon. So Jean is uh, kind of another reporter who's got a bit more experience. She's covered things like uh, patient abuse in nursing homes. She went undercover there to get that story. She's been working on these kind of investigative stories for a long time, unlike Loretta, who's come off a lifestyle desk. And so she kind of comes in and is like, hey, Loretta, just don't sweat this small stuff. Like the story is what's important and kind of helps guide her a little as, an, as a voice of reason and as someone who helps focus her efforts. So Carrie Coon, of course, we've seen in t- many TV shows like Leftovers and Fargo. She was also in Finch's Gone Girl and Ghostbusters Afterlife. And what I thought was interesting, I did not realise this was her. She played the role of Proxima Midnight, in Avengers Infinity War. So she was the voice and facial, uh, capture. And there was a stunt woman who did the actual sort of in-scene acting. Um, but basically, Proxima was, she worked with Thanos in that film. She was the ones, one of the two who attacked Wanda and Vision in that great train station scene. And she was also the, the enemy in that great. She's not alone, seen at the very end of the film. So she did reprise the role in What If, the animated
1: series. Also, did. the wife of Corvus Glaive. Oh, my mistake. In, in the Black Order. Um, there's oh. a scene when uh, they all get dusted in um, mm. Endgame, and she's oh, on the battlefield right. cradling the head of her. Dead husband who's fallen. That's you know. right. It's a very sad thing, but it's in the background. Yeah. There. But she's got a lot of experience, and and that really does mirror. There's a sort of a feeling that she's the mentor to that very much so. the mentor.
0: Yep, 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 for sure. And I think she was sort of a nice. You know, there's a couple of times where she's just, "Oh, like, be ready better get over yourself," and I thought that was nice energy. And I think she did a
1: really nice job. There are two other people in this apart from the victims. Uh, who obviously are important in the story, the detective, the main detective, and also, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. the the killer. The alleged
0: Boston Strangler. So playing um, a detective, Conley, we have Alessandro Nivola, who – Look, I didn't recognise, but he's been in a lot of stuff that I've seen. So Detective Conley does work a little bit with Loretta. They kind of share leads. And even though there's a lot of animosity at the time between the paper and the police department, they do kind of try to maintain a bit of a, a working relationship there. So Navola he was in Face Off. He was in Jurassic Park 3. He was in the Soprano off The Many Saints of Newark, and he was also in the recent movie Amsterdam. So he's got one of those very recognizable faces. I think he's also one of the only characters that has a legitimate Boston accent in this. We saw him in the Red Sea Diving
1: Resort, too. Oh, nice, nice.
0: Uh, and I thought he was pretty good. I mean, look, the character's pretty thin. He it's it's detective straight off the page, but
1: that's but okay. it's actually good that he's uh, playing like second banana to the two reporters, I thought that was good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, agree. We're
0: firmly focused on the adventures of Loretta in this. Uh, We also, of course, as you mentioned, we have Albert DeSalvo, who is the alleged Boston Strangler, uh, and he is played by David Dasmalchian, David Dasmalchian, uh, and Look, he's someone we've seen a lot, and recently he's got a very re- memorable face. But I could not have told you that actor's name, uh, which I will try to remember from here on out. So he was in all of the Ant Man's. Um, he played sort of one of the, the one of Scott's mates, the wombats.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it, Kurt? Kurt uh, Goreshta. That sounds right. But he yes. was also in Quantum he was, Mania.
0: He was. So he was. He was in Quantum Mania. Was he a different character? Yes, though?
1: he was. Um, he was like a. <laughs> like the uh, the character who was like in a, in a bottle kind of thing, Veb, and he was able to um, connect to the characters using his bodily juices. Oh,
0: <laughs> Quantum Mania was truly unhinged. Um, then he was also in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Uh, he was in Bird Box, which was that Sandra Bullock Netflix piece. Um, he was in Suicide Squad. He was Polka Dot Man. <laughs> great role, great role. Uh, and of course, probably you will have seen him most recently in June. He played Peter Devries, uh, one of the ominous uh, side characters. Harkonans. And
1: he—I have to stop. Yes, Harkonnens. Patui. <laughs>
0: exactly. And he's going to be in the upcoming Oppenheimer.
1: Mm. Yeah, and he—I think he actually makes a well. I think he's—he's a, he's a good serial killer, if that's. A way to put it, Uh, he does characterise the fellow with enough intensity, and you know, to convince you that he's a very dangerous individual. I think we can actually say a bit more—not actual conviction—but we can say that um, Albert DeSalvo is more than just an alleged uh, Boston Strangler, because later in uh, real life, there was some retro detective work done with DNA analysis and they were actually to place the DNA of his family line at one of the murders in a pretty definitive way. Yeah,
0: so this is actually probably one of the things to mention. I mean, I I guess it's a spoiler for the film, but um, there's still some contention that he was responsible for all 13 um, murders, even though he did confess to them. Uh, he, as you as you say, he was linked to one of them with DNA evidence, the very last one, but there's also a lot of theories around the fact that because of the reporting that was done in the record American, uh, by these two reporters, it did, it did include a lot of details about the crime scenes and the women themselves Ah, to the public. And so it's a bit controversial in terms of that's kind of a no, no, because then that encourages copycats and there's some there's a lot of theory around the fact that some of these murders were committed by other people who were copying the Boston Strangler's MO to conceal, you know, and kind of make it a Boston Strangler killing when it was actually someone else, a close person in that woman's life. So the other thing too, was the articles in real life did really, really push the theory that one person was responsible for all of the murders, even though police were investigating multiple different suspects. And again, that just, Leads people, you know, even more encouragement for people with nefarious intentions out there to to copy these the um, the crimes. Well, I,
1: so, and I th- I think this is where Matt Ruskin's film does excel. They yeah do tip over towards exp- showing that this is a very you know the, uncovering the misogyny of the whole thing. I mean, mm. women are being murdered. It's a it's yeah. a, a horror crime of. Not exactly of the century, but it was so famous at the time and infamous, I should say Mm-mm. that it did affect the entire country in the United States and echoed around the world and as we've seen in the in a trivial aspect, I suppose the uh, influenced pop culture in in that yeah. genre ever since I mean you know whether or not it's a biopic or it's something done that's been based upon that like um uh, yeah no way to treat a lady another film that we've been talking about today
0: and i do think there's something too in obviously serial killers are bad but if indeed some of these murders were committed by close people in those women's lives i mean that is a truth that is is happening in our world today that a lot of the time it's you know intimate partner crime and you know close people someone that the woman knows and i think the fact that the the women ranged in age from like 19 to 85, diverse backgrounds um, does also lend to the theory that possibly even though the first five or six were all older white women, uh, the the kind of profile changed later on. And then obviously that could be because after the first five or six women, these articles were coming out with details. And then that's where maybe these other people started copying, copying the crime. So anyway, I'm not an investigator. I'm not going to keep Uh, Mulling on this, but I do we do mention it because it comes up in the film, and it's an interesting part of Ruskin's adaptation that he's choosing to go down this road of doubt that DeSalvo was the only lone perpetrator. So these crimes, I guess, are considered both solved and unsolved. I think I want to point out too that I think you know the situation can be both that it was excellent investigative reporting at the time and that it might have been damaging to the investigation, that media can be sensationalist in these situations, but it also did a lot to warn women about safety and try to make sure that they knew there was real imminent danger and that they had to protect themselves more firmly. So it's interesting to think a little bit about, especially when you add the layer of the fact that obviously we're operating in the 1960s, which is a totally different time and especially to be a woman
1: living alone. Mm. Chris Cooper plays Jack McLean, the Mm. editor of the, what was the name of the paper? The Record American. American. Um, he's not cast quite in the same shouty league as Peter Parker's boss, J. Jonah Jameson, or, or Clark no. Kent's Perry White, or even Carl colshack 's Tony Vincenzo. So they're sort of dialed back that, that gruff yeah. editorial voice, and that's probably just as well because there's not too much room for the too many other characters in this, no. this particular film. The other professional trope that they had going in this was contrasting the the uh, procedural of the detective's work with the reporters, which is kind of the same in in several aspects. Certainly the reporters seem to be able to get free access to autopsy reports and and case files and stuff. There seems to be a lot of sympathy for the reporter's struggle or whether or not there's um, (laughs) maybe some some, uh, money-changing hands. Who knows? It's reporting. But I think for me, I don't think that this film has got um as much depth depth as it could have but i think for me that the important thing about it is it is more sympathetic to the to the victims uh even if they do have that same trope of, of everybody of how do they differentiate them in a, a large group of people um yeah. that's a, that's an ongoing problem in these sorts of films and it almost makes you think that um they could do a film where they minimise the role, the detective work and and it's all, that's actually the background. Yeah. But then again, we're there for that procedural, but maybe we shouldn't be, you know.
0: It's, it's, oh gosh, I know. Should we, should we have a little track from the film before we kind of wrap up our final thoughts on this one? Let's um, take a listen to something from The Score. So The Score was done by Paul Leonard Morgan. He's known for a variety of his different musical work, including scores for Limitless in 2011, Dread, and uh, Mission Impossible 5. So he's, he's done also some composing for TV as well, Nothing wildly that I'm familiar with. He was also the composer for the video game Cyberpunk 2077, which I thought was interesting. But he did actually know he composed for Tales from the Loop, Rob, which I know you really liked and was quite a lovely score. So, anyway, let's hear a little piece from his score for Boston Strangler, which is showing on Disney Plus and we're having a chat about today on Zero G. We'll hear, because she's our main girl Friday here, we're going to listen to a piece called Loretta Investigates.
1: This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Hmm.
0: A lovely piece there. Well, lovely, not the right term. A piece there from the score to Boston Strangler. That one is by Paul Leonard Morgan and was called Loretta Investigates. We're talking a bit about the Boston Strangler, um, not biopic, inspired by a true story crime film uh, that's now on Disney+. Plus.
1: Yeah, we're talking about... Boston Strangler, because The Boston Strangler is a completely different movie.
0: It is. It is. And before we hear a little bit about that one, uh, I just kind of wanted to, overall, I think I was a little bit disappointed by this one, to be honest. I felt it lacked tension which sounds ridiculous because the whole premise is quite a tense one I think I've been spoiled in the past by the great films like Spotlight like that built tension in such a way that you're on the edge of your seat that whole film I think it didn't do enough in I just wanted more conflict I even wanted more misogyny make the editor much more of an ass. like do you know what I mean like make it real world like she's publishing her first article within the first 15 minutes I I get that if that was real, but I wanted to just have a little bit more either tension in the crime portion, like really build up, show us what it was like in Boston, show us how people were living in fear, the panic, you know, the all of that mood, like give us more of that or amp up the investigative journalism piece, like really show us how they're fighting. They did a bit, but I never really felt that immersed in it and I don't think it's the top of its game for either a crime film or a journalism film, uh, which I thought was a bit bit disappointing. I do think that, I mean, like all good films covering this era, it had the correct green-tinged, saturated, Fincher-esque cinematography (laughs) that signals to us that you're in the sad 60s and not the hairspray 60s. So, okay, we're sad, things are demure, the colour palette is dull and – it does do, the film does do some nice subtle work just showing about what life is like for Loretta, how they both Loretta and Jean got to where they are and, you know, any sacrifices they've made and how they do really want to work on these stories and they care about this and they care about covering it for the paper. The aesthetic cues are there for the time and place. Everyone's smoking. There's grainy TV news, clacking of typewriters, but I just, I just wanted more of everything some of the action towards the end, some of the unwrapping of different theories was interesting but it came far too late for me and i didn't feel unhinged enough through watching it like i really wanted to feel feel like you know it's 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 a terrible terrifying situation and they're right in there pushing against the grain of sexism to get these stories out and really Break this news about this horrible period of time in Boston, and all of that just didn't come through enough for me. I just really wanted to feel. I wanted to feel tense. I wanted to feel engaged, and it didn't go enough into the culpability of media of the media during this time and how the articles did, you know, enable copycats. It just was a little bit rosy eyed about that. Which is, and I get,
1: I get. Which it. is a shame since this movie is more about the two reporters. You'd think they. It is, yeah. In terms of you know, like a science fiction film, we'd expect them to explore all of the ramifications of a technological advance or something like that. In this case, exactly. yes, the same thing. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, show us some consequences or show us some tension. I think just having that cinematography wasn't enough. Having a great actor wasn't enough. It just, I think, maybe the script and the directing was a bit lacking. Oh
1: God, Megan, this is like the Roman arena. Are you not entertained? <laughs>
0: I know. I think but you know what? I watch a lot of this stuff and I think I have fairly high I have high standards. I've seen this kind of thing done better before.
1: (laughs) Megan's comment, not sufficiently unhinged.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean this (laughs) like and I'm not I don't mean in a violent sense. Like I'm not saying there had to be more gore. Like it did pull back on on the graphic violence. Like it is not it it does what it does, but it's trying to keep the focus on the investigation and the women reporting. Uh, I'm not saying that it has to be, you know, Tarantino blood everywhere. I mean, more between the characters, conflict, mm. pushing up against the time. Yeah. That's the stuff I mean, not gore. Yeah.
1: I actually agree with you pretty much 100%. I felt the same. Uh, it, the, the film itself was, I felt muted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do give it extra points for, it's actually quite fascinating delving into the. I don't want to give away the film, but, um, you know, into, into some parts of the misogyny. They do construct an interesting theory about that, I thought. And also one particular moment where Loretta realises that what she's actually doing is she follows her reporter's instincts. It's actually really dangerous. Yes. And she reacts yeah. exactly how a human being should react to that when she realises that and she just gets the hell out of dodge. Mm, mm, And mm, I thought, mm, mm. yeah, I'll pay that. That's exactly what we want her to do. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. It's like, yeah, this is dangerous. Your your face name is printed in the paper. People know that you're investigating this stuff. Yeah. You're putting yourself in a dangerous position.
1: Mm. Yeah, so in a zero-G terms, it it gives me a a feeling of, um, yeah, maybe.
0: uh, Yeah. Which is
1: not a reflection upon the crimes or anything at all, just the way this film is Constructed put together, yeah. yeah. Well, if you want more misogyny and more <laughs> gore and more engagement, it's actually interesting. The 1968 The Boston Strangler, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Richard Fleischer. Uh, whose film career, well, you know, it was really big in in the uh, the fifties, sixties, seventies, and through to the late eighties. He was a, mm-hmm. a very, very workmanlike director who often had quite unexpected hits with his movies. But you know, he's a man behind Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea from fifty four, The Vikings from fifty eight, Fantastic Voyage in sixty six, Doctor Doolittle, um, oh. the World War Two movie about the attack on Pearl Harbor, Torra Torra Toro Soylent Green in nineteen seventy three. <laughs> Wow. Classic science fiction film. Lots of classics of different genres. This is the thing across the board Amityville 3D in 83. (laughs) Two of the. He's
0: done everything.
1: ah, Two of the um, sequels to Conan the Barbarian, The Destroyer and Red Sonja as well, which were lesser sequels, but you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Flushing knew his stuff. And this film was loosely based upon the nineteen sixty six book by Gerald Frank, so it, you know it's about the Boston Strangler killings, and it stars Tony Curtis, who you probably don't know, but he's like Janet Lee's was Janet Lee's husband, and Tony and Jamie Lee Curtis's father. So there you go. Henry Fonda's in it. George Kennedy. In fact, the list of characters. Actors in there reads like a list of nineteen sixties and seventies television, because they would all okay. show up, you know, like George Kennedy and and so on. And um, Tony Curtis plays Albert DeSalvo, the killer. Interesting. Yeah, so he's like um, escaping from his uh, heroic roles in like um, the Great Race or the television series The Persuaders, or we played Houdini and in the trapeze artist in trapeze and. Uh, and light years away from his comic role and some like it hot, you know. So mm-hmm. really – and all those um, uh, Hollywood Araby movies where he was playing a, mm-hmm. a prince or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. here he is. And he does a really um, chilling performance in this one. And mm-hmm. I find that um, he got a Golden Globe nomination for it, really deserved a bit more for that uh, acts his heart out in this one um yeah. and the question yeah. is of course does the killer actually have a heart well no <laughs> but you know but this one pushes some um uh, pop psychology from the 1960s um you know it's uh he's got a split personality the killer what yeah. <laughs> now i don't see i'm not an expert on the these cases and i don't want to be um mm. the boston strangle and so um you know, but it, That's a Hollywood thing it, they've it added. Is. I don't know. I don't. I honestly can't say because there is a lot of stuff on this, but I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I, I, I bracket my conversation with that. Disassociative identity disorder is what we call it now, mental health condition. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. this is a, a characteristic of these 60s films. There's a lot of pop psychology. They, they call in a psychic at one stage who... Which happened, yeah, which did. was
0: real. That happened, yeah. yeah. He gets it wrong. He gets... He, which
1: happened, which was really yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and there's hypnotism deployed casually by a doctor in a hospital. I thought it's- that was the
0: thing, wasn't it? They yeah. used to love yeah, hip- yeah. hypnotizing people willy nilly back in that era,
1: yeah, and it's just used so matter of fact, matter of factly in the sixty 60- in the sixty eight film, which, as you were saying earlier on in the show, is there in the time, so they don't have to yeah. they don't have to invent the color palette. Although Yeah,
0: yeah, it comes built yeah, in. Yeah, it
1: comes built in, but this is sixty eight, so it's actually about the murders earlier on. So you yes. know, maybe they don't get it right a little bit. But it does feel well authentic, yeah. you know, because and the misogyny is baked in, basically. It's, mm, it's, yeah. yeah. Which does not mean that we don't call it out. This is a, a problem that people have. They go, Oh, you can't criticize them because of the times. Screw that. You know, this is this Yes, is a, you can. You can absolutely. Yeah. You know, we don't have to keep echoing the same mistakes on through eternity. I've got a lot of gladiator lines today on the show for some reason. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, so um, it's, it's got Sally Kellerman in there, um, who we knew was... Um, uh, hot Lips, hot, hot lips Houlihan in the MASH movie, Robert Altman's movie. But also we knew her from um, oh, Star Trek, where no man has gone before. Uh, Jeff Corey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a massive cast in this. And Henry Fonda plays um, John S. Bottomley, the Massachusetts Attorney Assistant General. Sorry, the Assistant Attorney General. And, you know, he's Henry mm-hmm. Fonda. You're going to tell him everything. You're going to spill your guts to him. It's Henry Fonda. Oh, yeah. Ain't you, though? So he rapidly <laughs> takes over the the uh, the main detective role because he's, as we were saying before about the earlier the other film, the 2023 film, he's coordinating the investigation. He puts um, it gets put in place by the Attorney General to yeah. speed things up a bit. And he does. He also gets involved in some extraordinarily dodgy police work at one stage where he's... Uh, leading the suspect once they've they've caught him mm. and and trying to break him psychologically with the, uh, yeah. the consent of the doctors. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, my God. I, but I don't know how much of this is, is true or false, and that's really not my point of view here. I'm looking at it as a, as a film. It is a, a really good film in terms of they're using split screens to show the the uh, to montage the murders, and it the wow. tension is definitely there as you see the uh, the killer's boots walking upstairs and the, the mm-hmm. victim in, in in their apartment or whatever. One thing that none of these really they skate around it, you know, they're all very quick to say, Oh, to blame the victim, you know, for, for various reasons for opening the door, etc., etc., and it's yeah. actually built into the plots of these stories. The fact that they open the door because they they say they're from the building manager and they're going to look at the pipes or fix the heater or something like that. And there is a clear thing that people are not getting enough maintenance done by their landlord. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's right right there in front of you.
0: Exactly. It's it's so true, Rob. Mm. I also think it's, yes, they let them in, but can we also acknowledge that they were being conned? Like these people are manipulative. They're deliberate. Like, uh, yeah they, anyway but it's always women in well, this so.
1: in this one they also allude to the fact that they don't really mention it but they they sort of sort out the fact that it's well it's older women in some cases they let Tony Curtis into their house you know it's like uh, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And in fact, there's a lot of that in there that just makes you go, ew as you're watching it. Uh, the sense of place is, of course, spot on because they've got, like, television screens and the televisions around with the Mercury astronauts being paraded through the streets because that's what the time it is. So later on, yeah. um, the assassination of uh, JFK. You know, So that, all these mm-hmm, things play mm-hmm, into it. Mm-hmm. There's snow on the street, although I look at it and I think there's snow on the street out front of the building that they're going into, but you look down the street, there's no snow at all. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I wonder what's going on.
0: The, the production money All ran out. out yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and, and, yes, the, the tension in this is, is really strong. Terrible depictions of uh, mental health, um, horrible misogynistic stuff, uh, awful stuff about um, uh, the gay community, for example, you know, as we were talking about earlier on, rounding up the usual suspect sort of stuff. Although there was actually a bit of nuance in this one I was quite surprised to see. I I thought, what's going on there? Okay. Walk it back a little. So, you know, um, maybe they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And that's probably because the detectives are gumshoes. So, you know, Uh, yes. So, a lot of fear mongering in this and Mm -hmm. more actually, more actual intricate um, interplay between the media. But this film entirely neglects female reporters. There are no. I bet. I bet it does. Nothing at all. And then you watch them careening around the the crime scenes with no gloves on and smoking. Oh, (laughs) God. (laughs) (laughs) And you think, yeah, okay. But, uh, yeah, so that one is actually worth catching up with. There are many caveats. Mm -hmm. It will make you wince in a lot of places and not just the murders, which is where you should be, you know, absolutely horrified. Uh, But, you know, first-class performance from... Tony Curtis, even if I think it probably was a misplaced sort of performance. Yeah. Um, so so check that one out, Richard Flash's 1968 The Boston Strangler, which is available for uh, buy or rent on um, Apple TV, iTunes, that sort of thing. Plus, of course, there's, nice. there's DVDs around by now. And the last film to work through, No Way to Treat a Lady, which is based upon a novel by the great William Goldman, one of the great mm-hmm. writers of all time, actually in the 20th century, and and so on. So he put a book together, um, which was inspired by, inspired by I use that in air quotes about the Boston Strangler, um, and there were there was talk of there being two stranglers operating, as something is unpicked in the, the most recent movie. Really, they they look at those mm-hmm. theories mm-hmm. too, and they changed the movie adaptation when they. When they did one to have only one strangle over. So Goldman's going, ah, that's not the point. You know? Anyway, this yeah. film is directed by Jack Smythe, uh, who did um, films like Airport 1975, the start of a whole oh, genre, wow. Midway in 1976, another World War II film, and also did episodes of The Twilight Zone and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and nice. <laughs> not to his credit, Damnation Alley, though that's not really his fault. That was. The, the, <laughs> The suits got involved with that one. And speaking of suits, skin suits in this case, the illustrated man with Rod Steiger, a Ray Bradbury adaptation. Rod Steiger, of course, plays the killer in No Way to Treat a Lady, um, wearing a variety of disguises, having a lot of fun altering his appearance and accents all the way (laughs) through, conning his way into apartments so he can strangle the poor victims uh, as an Irish priest, as a German plumber. and. he really shouldn't be having so much fun in this role no <laughs> George segal is the detective and because this is a this is more this is a fictional thing and it's not really the Boston strangler as such but it's heavily based upon all of that um mm. you know they are able to deploy all of the tropes. They can have the the killer calling on the telephone the detective to taunt them from the murder victims from the crime scene. You know, so Oh, yes. They can have him stalking the detective. They can have the detective. Manufactured tension. They can have the detective involved romantically with one of the witnesses. Oh, gosh. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah Lee yeah. Remick is the witness in question. And so, you know, all these sorts of tropes are in play. But well deployed, you can see the the echoes of Goldman's original story coming through in places. I'm sure yeah. the detective's a little bit like Columbo. He's... <laughs> oh, I like that. he's harassed by his mum and, you know, there's <laughs> all sorts of things. Right, right. Think, oh, yeah, okay, this, this all makes sense. Um Yeah, so... If you want to check that one out, again, that one's also available. So there's a, a progression through these films or a de- devolution or whatever how you want to look at it. You've got <laughs> Boston Strangler today, you've got The Boston Strangler from 68, and you've got No Way to Treat a Lady back in the day in, uh, I think it's 68 as well. Yes. Um, so these are films. To, I absolutely do not recommend watching them all at once. Mm, do not. Yeah, Rob, them. you. <laughs> I, oh, I took one for the team for that. And uh, I thought we'd go out today with a track uh, which features Lee Remick Uh and Angela Lansbury to get our Murder, She Wrote (laughs) reference in there. And this is from, and who else, uh, a musical by Stephen Sondheim (laughs) called With So Little To Be Sure Of and the... Actual musical is Anyone Can Whistle. The track is, we've so little to be sure of. And I like the, the connection between that and No Way to Treat a Lady because the Rod Steiger character whistles all the time in that. So, you know, just a weird zero-G connection. It's a little bit lighter, except it's Sondheim, so it's not that light to take us out of today's odd focus upon true crime. Thank you, Megan, for that. (laughs) (laughs) And coming up next is Joe Botanic with Astral Glamour. So he'll be on your case next. And thank you to our resident intrepid podcaster, Alice Savage. Thank you, Rob.